Hey, Kara. Oh, you sound so much more cheerful. <laughs> You're like, it's all an act. <laughs> no, it's not. I, you know, much like the last time we did a podcast interview, one of the values of doing all my homework at the last minute is that it's fresh. <laughs> and I'm really excited by this 43-page chapter that I just oh. read by... Aaron Blackwell and Ben Trumbull. And we focus, at least I focused on just the one section since I guess that was Aaron's biggest contribution. I focused a bit on the poster he sent us because it is based on data that was already collected. And since I think a lot of people right now are trying to think of ways to pivot their research program so that it doesn't involve travel and yet still try to be productive, looking at existing data sets is probably going to become exceptionally important in all of our work now. So I figured that might be a really nice way to start this podcast off because it's going to be very relevant to a lot of people. And then he mentioned this chapter that he seemed excited to talk about, so I didn't want to pigeonhole him into just one thing. <laughs> the, yeah. Between the two of us, we'll be completely all over the place. And that's kind of how these last few interviews have been. Why? <laughs> because we're tired and we're cranky and everyone's unhappy and with good reason. So, you know, go where we want with the questions. But he also has super productive grad students. One who we've had on the show already, Carmen Hove, who won the student award, the last HBAs, and then Amy Anderson. We're interviewing her tomorrow. Okay. So he's on that paper also. I know there's a paper that he's on that like 1,200 people we've interviewed and need to interview are all on. (laughs) Yeah, sounds about right. And in reading this chapter, it was like Sam Erlocker, Eric Shattuck, Michael Muhlenbein, and um, Michael Gervin, da-da-da. Yeah, no, it was, it was, <laughs> it was all the things. <laughs> welcome to the Sausage of Science, Aaron Blackwell. Thanks oh. for having me. Yeah, Great. welcome to the show. And thank you so much for being on. I know since we initially invited you to be on the show, everything went crazy. Yep. Since we invited you on. Wasn't it going crazy at the time? Because he was in Hawaii, stuck in a car or something like that. You have a great yeah. story, right? I might have been, yeah. I was in Hawaii. We went to Hawaii. It was the last vacation possible, I think. But we had it scheduled beforehand, and we were like, should we go? Should we not go? And we had to go to the Bay Area for a wedding anyway. So we were just continuing on from there. But yeah, we were there, and then we just went to this little town for lunch, and there was a flash flood, and it closed the bridge to town. And oh my gosh. so we were there for 31 hours. We slept in our car. Yeah. Wow. That's messed up. Yeah, it wasn't what we were expecting when we went for lunch. But. <laughs> <laughs> and then the travel back, uh, did, you, did you run into any issues with all of the chaos that was and still ongoing? Not really. So as we left in Hawaii, they were gradually shutting things down. They'd close the parks and things like that. And, mm. you know, they were setting up rules so that you couldn't leave the house. And so new people who came in had to be quarantined and things like that. But so we left kind of just as things were shutting down. and. Mm. The airport was quite quiet, actually. We went mm. through the Seattle airport. and Eerie? Like an eerie, disturbing kind of quiet? A little bit eerie, yeah. A lot of people were wearing masks on the airplane. So it was a little strange, but it was... Where uh, are you now? In Pullman, Washington. So how has the transition <laughs> gone for you, going from, you know, regular workaday life to now being at home lockdown? How have you been managing classes, research, and being stuck at home? You know, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. Part of it is I don't have kids, I think. So that makes it a lot easier, right? (laughs) But getting the classes online, you know, once you figured out how to use Zoom and how to use Zoom well, that actually hasn't been that bad. And I think I I lucked out because my intro to bioanth class that I'm teaching, 
Luke Primo had already developed some online labs for that class mm -hmm. to be able to offer it online. Sometimes we offer online classes through WSU. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, you know, borrow some lab materials from him. And he had already scanned a bunch of materials. So there's 3D bones and things like that that people nice. can look up online for their lab work. So it's actually been not that bad in that sense. Yeah. That's really good to hear. How have the students mm -hmm. been coping with it from your sense of things? You know, they haven't spent a lot of time talking to me and telling me exactly what they're doing, but they're showing up for class and they're, you know, they're turning in their assignments for the most part. Mm -hmm. I've had a few people that, you know, have said that they had issues mm -hmm. or they had their, their families were hard hit or things like that, but I haven't heard a lot of stories like that. So they, they seem to be doing okay. Some of them were upset, right, that they, they left for spring break thinking mm -hmm. they'd come back and didn't get to say goodbye to their friends. And, yeah. So yeah, Notre Dame had spring break and then over spring break shut everything down, extended spring break by a week and then completely transitioned to online from there. Ah, uh, yeah. And, we just, they made the announcement Friday before spring break, I think that we were going online. Hmm. So yeah, they were like, use spring break to prepare. Yep. That, that was us too, except you get yep. an extra week as well. <laughs> well we didn't get that, but yeah. Uh. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's been quite interesting to see how it's all been playing out. Yes. So now that we've gotten through our new obligatory introductory mm -hmm. question, our former obligatory introductory <laughs> question is really about how the sausage of the scientist is, is made. So Aaron, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk to you and you're really, really involved with the Human Bio Association. We've talked to some of your students, but we'd love... I got to say the chapter you sent is a tour de force of like everybody we've ever talked to and everybody we plan to talk to. So you should have a, a nice, big, rich story for us. How'd you get into anthropology and what brought you to where you are today? So it's kind of a roundabout story, actually, because I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. And so cool. when I went to college, I kind of took all the different sciences and the, the major that incorporated most of those was biochemistry. So I ended up majoring in biochemistry, took some Russian classes, figured that would be good for an astronaut. Yeah. So I got to my senior year, I think, and I was like, actually, you know, that's kind of a long shot trying to be an astronaut. <laughs> You're not our first astronaut wannabe, by the way. I mm -mm. I'm sure. Yeah. Do, have you had anybody that was successful at it, though? Uh, still, still in progress. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's <laughs> defending this May. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Malika Sarma, you know her. Yeah, it could happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like day after graduation, I went to Ecuador just to get out of the country. I had an ex-girlfriend that was there on a study abroad program. And so I just traveled around Ecuador for a few months after I graduated with my biochemistry degree. Didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I came back to, I was in Portland at that time and needed a job. And the job I was able to get was a biochemistry job working in a cell and developmental biology lab. So I actually did lab work on some proteins related to hemochromatosis for well, about two years. And then I decided I liked doing lab work. I didn't like doing lab work all the time. So I actually quit that job and I went to South America again, following a different girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I was in South America for nine months that time, mm. just mostly in Chile, but also in other places. I was working on writing a, a novel actually while I was there and trying to do that. And that wasn't that great either, you know, sitting and writing all the time. So anyway, I came back. I got a different wait, job. Wait, 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 wait. Did you publish this? I did not. No. It's still, it needs a lot of revision. And what I what kind of genre is it? Time. 
It's science fiction. Science fiction. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is exciting. I know. Yeah. We now it's want this to happen. <laughs> I'm thinking of Aaron the first time he went to Ecuador with his biochemistry degree. So I'm picturing him walking around with a piece of paper. Yeah. And the second one, he's sitting there writing the great American novel. So this is awesome. <laughs> that was the dream anyway. Yeah. So, but I needed another job when I came back from South America. So I, I got a job at the Veterans Hospital, actually working in the mental health department. And I ended up doing half my time was clinical drug trials. And half my time was doing hepatitis C epidemiology research. Now you're Ken Kesey. One flew over the cuckoo's <laughs> nest here. Yes. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, so, uh, you know, there were some pieces that I liked there, but it wasn't quite it. And somewhere along the way, I, I was just reading anthropology books, reading about evolutionary psychology, reading about I was reading some ethnographies too and things like that. So somehow I decided, ah, anthropology, I, I could put all these pieces together that I couldn't quite make work, like the lab work, the travel, the research with people, the epidemiology stuff. So that was how I, I kind of ended up deciding to apply to grad school in anthropology. And I had never actually taken an anthropology class when hmm. I went to grad school. Where did you end up getting your PhD and how did you decide on a program? Uh, I got my PhD at the University of Oregon with uh, Larry Sugiyama and Josh Snodgrass. And how did I decide on that? Well, I think it was the only one I got into, actually. It's also interesting because you said you had no experience in anthropology in undergrad and never took classes, which mm -hmm. for a lot of us is the gateway to know who's in what program and what they're studying. So how did you even go about that process without that background that so many people have? I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I read my statement from back then and it's a little bit crazy, the kinds of ideas I had and uh -huh. who I wanted to work with, but I had read a lot of papers. So I applied mm. to work with people that, whose papers I had read. And I had read John Tooby's work and I'd read some of his students' work, like Larry Sugiyama's work. So those were some of the people I applied to work with. So I actually applied to UC Santa Barbara and didn't get in there, which <laughs> worked out because then I got hired there later. But um. <laughs> So did Larry Sugiyama study with John Tooby? I didn't know this. He did, yeah. John Tooby and also uh, Napshagnon when he was hmm. there, so. Mm How -hmm. oh, interesting. This is all contextually making sense for me. Yeah, so one of the things that is striking about your story then, and as grad director at Alabama, we've wrestled with, do we accept students who don't have anthro backgrounds, or do we give people a chance based on basically writing a good personal statement and doing their homework? And your case suggests that find a good student who's got the right interests and they'll be fine. Yeah, I tend to look for students that Maybe they didn't do the right political work and don't quite know what they're saying in their statement in terms of the field, but they show me that they're smart. And I kind of like it when they have a biology background too. Mm. It's kind of easier to teach them the anthropology than it is some of the biology. That's a good point. Yeah. So when we contacted you about this interview, you sent us a bunch of awesome stuff that we could talk about and we were really excited. And I ended up zeroing in on the one thing you were probably like, why is she zeroing in on this? But it was a poster that you had at the HBAs last year. I believe it was last year. That was, I think it was last year. Last yeah. year. And it was about life history trade-offs among uh, the Chimani. And the reason I zeroed in on it is because this was data that already existed. So it was a pre-existing data set. And with the new situation in, in the world today, a lot of us are having to pivot our research, or at least plan to pivot our research, 
away from travel because we can't and perhaps start using these existing data sets. So I really wanted to focus on that because it's something you did successfully and to ask you some questions about it. So I wanted to give the context for why <laughs> I focused on this poster rather than any of the number of publications that you have. So the poster is titled Quantifying Life History Trade-Offs. And you are basically looking at different life history variables and how energy is allocated among the Chimani and a comparative group among NHANES data. So tell us a little bit about this project and how it came about and if it was the question that came first or, oh, look, here's a data set. Let me see what I can find. So here's how that happened, actually. What that poster is trying to do is figure out where energy is going within the body at all different ages across the lifespan to figure out how much different things cost. And originally it started because I had made a figure for one of my class lectures hmm. that was trying to just give a crude estimate for students of this is how much reproduction costs, this is how much some other things cost in terms of calories. And then I, I was remaking that as I was, I think I was revising my class slides. And I realized, you know, I could probably do a much better job with these estimates than I had done. And so what that paper does is it relies on not just the data from the Chimani project, that's sort of one of the inputs, but a lot of estimates that I pulled from different publications on how much energy different organs use, how much energy immune function takes, and how much energy it takes to grow, for example, and things like that. You know, I just started pulling stuff together and I realized I could really kind of maybe not do a perfect job of estimating any of these things, but a much better job than I had done previously for that. And I think this is a question that was out there for a long time, like, how much do things cost? How do they trade off with one another? We hadn't tried to really even just give crude estimates. You know, it's really hard to measure directly. You know, you've got a whole person. How do you figure out which part of the body is using what amount of energy at what time? That's pretty hard to do. But there are studies that use MRIs and things like that to try to get estimates mm -hmm. coupled with various, you know, regression equations where they look at variation in organ size and things like that. That was sort of where that came from, basically. And hopefully I'll finish it as a paper one of these <laughs> days now that I'm in quarantine and I have nothing else to do. No, I have plenty of other things to do, but hopefully I'll still finish it. So it interestingly came out of a completely different area than I expected having it yeah. come out teaching. <laughs> I just like did not expect that avenue, but it's a cool one to think about. So what did you find? What are some of the issues you came across using an existing data set? Well, it depends on which data set we're talking about there. So I used a bunch of data sets. I used the data from the Chimani project, Chimani Health and Life History project which as anyone who works on that project will tell you, there's a lot of data and there's a lot of noise in some of that data that needs cleaning and things like that. So that's one issue, but having been working with that data for a long time, a lot of that cleaning has been worked out. Mm -hmm. You know, the other issues with the NHANES data is you get what's there basically. Yeah. So some things aren't there that you wish were there, of course. It's pretty clean data though. There's still some errors that I find once in a while, but... So for folks who have collected data or data mm -hmm. is collected and they're, you know, putting all their data sets out there for access, any like, hey, remember to do this to make life easier for folks who use these data sets in the future? You know, I think one of the biggest problems is you start a project, you don't know how it's going to expand in the future. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these projects started with not even knowing they were going to be longitudinal projects. Mm -hmm. So if you just assume your project's going to be longitudinal and design your system for signing IDs and things like that from the beginning, assuming that you're going to do that and your way of marking down visit dates and things like that. Those are all just little things that hmm. make a big difference in the long run. 
And then of course, documenting what you did, having a code book for your data mm-hmm. that makes a big difference too. And a lot of us don't do that ahead of time. You know, even now a lot of stuff's just in people's heads. So trying to reconstruct it later. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> you know? I find myself doing that of like, oh yeah, shit, I should write down with this random thing that I did with my data set to make sure I remember for the method section of the paper I'm writing. You know, if you want somebody else to be able to use it later, mm-hmm. that data. When you're on a tear doing analysis and you're, you're vibing on it, it's hard to sit down and mm-hmm. be pragmatic. And I have a colleague who gets up every morning and meticulously records everything he did the day before. And he's done it in diaries since he was in grad school, I guess. And he's almost like a slave to his diaries. But as a consequence, he's so good at it. His writing is publishable and he publishes like five books a year. So there's a cost and benefit to it. But Aaron, I was going to ask you just to sort of follow up on the first question. How long has it taken you to do this? How long since you got your PhD and how long have you been actually teaching and doing research? I got my PhD at the end of 2009. And then I started my postdoc after that at UC Santa Barbara. So, you know, how long has that taken? It's been, what? how long has that been? Uh, so you're 10 years 11 out. 11 years, I guess. Yeah. 11 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the same as me. That sounds like a similar trajectory. I would, I would like to say I'm as thoughtful about my data as you're saying you have come to be. But Well, I'm not saying I am that thoughtful. I'm saying <laughs> I should be. And if I'm telling somebody how to do it in the future, they should do better than I did. It yeah. is the hindsight, always. Yes, always. <laughs> so maybe give us a couple of the highlights from that poster, the kind of the big picture, what you learned and where you want to take it. And then we'll talk about that awesome chapter you sent. Okay. Now on the poster, I thought... There were a lot of different ways you could take it. So one of the key things I was looking at was just quantifying how much immune function costs across different ages. So one of the takeaways was that based on the estimates I had, which were all put together piecemeal, calculating how much this piece of immune function should cost in this piece based on the levels that we had of cell counts in the blood and, mm. and that sort of thing, multiplied by a certain amount per cell. So one takeaway was that much as we'd predict investment into maintenance effort goes down with age, which fits a lot of predictions about how it should fit. But then I think the main way I tried to decided to pitch it was something that was surprising to me. And that was that calculating out how much growth actually costs, I found that growth was much cheaper than a lot of, or at least than I had assumed it would be in terms of the cost of actually building and putting on new body materials throughout childhood, which I thought was relevant for thinking about trade-offs during childhood in terms of how immune activation is going to cause growth deficits and whether those growth deficits are really because there's not enough energy to grow right then or whether they're sort of an adaptation to produce a smaller adult essentially that Mm. is going to need less energy all the time for the rest of their life if you end up smaller. That, that was one of the big takeaways for me was that the actual cost is not that high and there may be still short-term accommodations when People are really under extreme energetic stress where you really have to shut off, even if it's only 25 calories a day, still have to shut that growth off. But in some ways that the magnitude of the effects that we often see make a little more sense in terms of those kind of predictive responses rather than just constraints per se. This sounds very similar to what Sam Erlacher was telling us. Yeah, just the other day. His work was with the Schwar and, you know, this is the Chimani. Yeah, Sam and I have worked on things together. So we have some papers together. So we we think about a lot of the same things for sure. So let's talk about this chapter. So one, I know Kara wants to ask you where it's appearing. And it's obviously it's in a human behavioral ecology 
text. I have a lot of questions about this, but I don't know. Just give us a context for it, and then we'll, we'll launch into it. This is for a book. I think the title is just Human Behavioral Ecology, and it's edited by Jeremy Koster, Brooke Shelza, and Mary Schenk. And so they've been putting us together for a while because some of us are a little slow writing our chapters. I think most of the chapters are in now. Mine is, I think, under review at the moment, how it has been for a while. So I think most of the book is there. I don't know exactly when it's supposed to actually be finished, but most of it exists at the moment. I think the goal was to be a, a bit of a follow-up volume to some of the earlier volumes, some of the Smith and Winterhalder behavioral ecology volumes, just because, you know, a lot's happened since those yeah. earlier volumes came out. Yeah. Well, you allude to this right up at the beginning, and I wonder on the West Coast there what your experience of this is, especially coming out of, you know, working under John Tooby, who's an anthropologist, but started evolutionary psychology. So I was on the East Coast. I was briefly at Rutgers with Trivers and Lee Cronk. And then, you know, when I went to college, I worked in evolutionary psychology, but there was a lot of animosity between anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists. And to date, a lot of the evolutionary psychology that I was trained on gets just bastardized by anthropologists, sometimes justly and a lot of times just taking the piss. And I wonder what your experience of that whole controversy is and what you're trying to do with this chapter, which I applaud. I, I hate disciplinary pissing matches. Let me just <laughs> state that out front. Santa Barbara certainly had its own history with the sociobiology wars, as some people call them, where that department had a lot of controversy and it actually divided more or less back in, I don't know, the late 90s or early 2000s or something. And so that was a big split there and it still persists today. So in terms of, it's the same department, but there's two units within the department. And one's the integrative anthropological sciences unit, and one's the sociocultural and archaeology unit. And they pretty much split their hiring, split their grad programs and everything else. So I think these are better there now than they were, but they kind of settled down. I guess my take is that I encounter certainly people that are uncomfortable with the term evolutionary psychology. It's kind of funny because evolutionary psychology stopped calling themselves sociobiologists because the term sociobiology took on lots of negative connotations for a lot of people. And then they started using EvPsych and then EvPsych kind of got its own set of baggage, mostly from a lot of sometimes not that well done studies on mating and things like that and more pop science-y kind of stuff. But for me, that's never been what EvPsych is. For me, EvPsych is really just the idea that our brains evolved and our brains were under selective pressures and that they're not blank slates. There's, there's content there that affects how we learn stuff and it affects how we make decisions. And the actual details of that are the subject of empirical investigation. And like the question of like how modular that is or not modular or general, I think is open. There are different ways to solve the same adaptive problems. So I think that that's the kind of stuff that needs to be investigated and that people are investigating. But it's not just the the pop science-y mating kind of stuff. But I, I encounter within, I know people that are human behavioral ecologists that are uncomfortable with evolutionary psychology, mostly because of some of the baggage that comes with that term, even if they're not uncomfortable with the idea that humans kind of behave in adaptive ways. And the same thing for some of the cultural evolution folks, you know, they're really relying on the idea that our minds have biases that affect how we transmit and learn culture. And those come from somewhere, 
And depending on the context, some of those folks call themselves evolutionary psychologists and some of them distanced themselves and created some separation there. Anyway, in this chapter, you know, I, I kind of advocate for putting it all together and not being too concerned about what we call it, but trying to understand humans as both brains and bodies that interact. Brains and bodies aren't separate. There's hormones and all kinds of stuff that goes back and forth. We think with our bodies and things like that too. And just trying to think about all that together simultaneously. I really enjoyed this and I look forward to this book and seeing it all in context. But let me just hone in on one term you, I think you coined, and give you a chance to unpack it a little bit to put it in context for our listeners. What is multi-inheritance? So I was sort of riffing off of the dual inheritance in that case. You know, dual inheritance referring to the joint inheritance of genetics and culture, typically, and and sometimes to the the co-evolutionary process between genes and culture. And basically with multi-inheritance, I'm arguing that there's other ways that things are transmitted too, not just genes and culture, but various kinds of epigenetic mechanisms, methylation and RNA SNP, short RNAs and lipid membranes and things like that. And that if we really want to understand everything, we want to understand how all these different systems for passing information between generations interact with one another. So that's really what I was suggesting there, that it's not just genes and culture, but all these other things that transmit information. I do like the idea, the black box of human physiology within these questions of dual inheritance is important. And, and I've talked to Jason DeCaro and, and others at HBA and said that sometimes we're so focused on the black box, and you sort of make this point in the chapter at, at one point, some people, you say, not everybody, are so focused on the physiology, they lose track of the forest, and it goes both ways. So I found that a really nice integration. So I applaud you. Yeah, and that's pretty close to what my next question is. Uh, so when you sent us this chapter, you said that your portion of it was much more focused on the, and I'll just kind of give the subtitle here, underneath the phenotypic gambit, genetics, epigenetics, and culture. And that's very much, I think, exactly what Chris was alluding to, is genetics are not in isolation. Culture is not in isolation, is that you do have all of this integration and interaction going on, and they cannot be separated. And you refer to, and I'll go back to my question so I get it right, the neurophysiological black box and the inheritance black box. And if you could kind of unpack those two boxes for us and what they mean for understanding human behavior. Yeah, I mean, for me, I may have phrased it that way, but they're actually kind of the same thing in some ways, and that they're all the mechanisms that underlie how you get a behavior. You know, a behavior is a product of certain brain mechanisms interacting with input from the environment and all the other information that previously came in from the environment being expressed in a particular context. And so, you know, in terms of thinking about human behavior, I guess the neurophysiological black boxes is thinking about how all the hormonal information that is integrating body states and things like that, and how that is affecting behavioral decisions, behavioral choices, those kinds of things. But the inheritance black box then is, so HBE sort of traditionally would look at human behaviors and look at whether those behaviors match sort of what would be predicted to be an optimal adaptive behavioral pattern in a, in a particular context. That's sort of the traditional behavioral ecology without necessarily asking how that behavior came to match that environment or how that particular cultural practice came to match that environment. And we could imagine different processes through which 
that might happen. Some of those being cultural transmission and, you know, cultural changes, but some things like the inheritance of even just maternal effects that affect body size in a particular population where smaller mothers have smaller babies. Those kinds of things can persist and the size of your body may affect the kinds of things you do in that environment as well. So really the idea is just kind of unpacking how behavior changes over time because it's going to change over time through a combination of cultural change, changes in hormonal states, some of which may be heritable either through effects in utero or through epigenetic changes, and also how the environment itself is changing. So we have an inheritance of an environment that some people might think of in a niche construction kind of way. So what you're going to take some time. I mean, you have no choice but to take some time <laughs> to do some writing. What's next? You know, what are you writing? What are you working on? Right now, I'm trying to finish up a paper on effects of wealth inequality on health in the Chimane that I'm doing with Adrian Yegi. Another paper trying to finish up, it's a model for the transmission of immunological information from mothers to their offspring, because offspring in utero get a lot of antibodies from their moms, and those may help prime the infant's immune system. Now, so isn't Adrian Yegi a primatologist? He's sort of a primatologist, but he works with the Chimane as well. He was more of a primatologist, and now he's I think most of his recent work, he hasn't really done primatology for the most part for a little while. Okay. Yeah. Because he did a postdoc as well at Santa Barbara. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I know him project. from, uh, he came to one of our conferences here. He's at Emory now. And I know he's done some work with Chris Von Rudin as well. Who's also, is he also on the Chimani project? He is. Yeah. He got his PhD at UCSB. So. Right. Okay, cool. All roads lead to either Michigan. Not Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this week is a very anti-Michigan week, Chris. You must be loving it. Yes. Not that I hate Michigan. I just didn't go there. I have have zero connections to Michigan. So whenever all roads don't lead there. What else do you do, Aaron? What do you do for fun? What do you listen to, read, watch? Are you you picking up any new hobbies in your quarantine and isolation? I don't know if I'm picking up new hobbies. I'm spending more time on some of them than others. So I will advocate for virtual reality as as a good hobby for the quarantines. I like to work out in virtual reality, actually. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, other hobbies. Wait, yeah, can I you spell that out of... for me? You work out in virtual reality? I do. I do, uh, I do some boxing. I'm really into a game called Synth Riders right now, which is essentially a, <laughs> a rhythm game with a lot of synth wave music. I wear weighted gloves when I do it. Hmm. So. What's the system that you use? Uh, I use an Oculus Rift. Oh, very cool. What else? So you have your virtual workouts. Yeah. Uh, I used to surf a lot, but then I moved to Washington. So. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that would be exceptionally cold and miserable if you went. Yeah, well, and we're pretty far from the ocean here. So, oh, okay, yeah. You know, when I get a chance, go to Hawaii or something. And if I go to uh, Honduras to do scuba diving, things hmm. like that. So cool. not, not doing that right now. But yeah. <laughs> There's all these things like I was complaining yesterday that I have forgotten what it feels like to have a barbell on my back at this point. And it just, it depresses me on an hourly basis now. Yeah, it's not good. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. You know, I'm a lifter and I'm literally unable to do anything because I have no equipment at home whatsoever. Oh, 
We were lucky enough to buy a, a Bowflex shortly before uh, all this started. I would kill for anything. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. I have resistance bands, but that just, it's not the same for a power lifter to mm-hmm. like go from a bar to resistance bands. Yes. Anyway. Oh, I also have a, a thing, a bicycle trainer, and I have a little sensor that you can put on the pedal and then I can bicycle in virtual reality. So this is cool shit. Pretty cool. Yeah. 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 We're going to have to do a Geeky Tech Oculus Rift episode with you because this be is something amazing. I want to know more about. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do the interview in, in virtual reality. Though. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> so, Aaron, if folks want to learn more about your work or contact you, what's the best way to do that? They should go to my webpage, probably. Blackwelllab.com. That's easy. With a dash. I think it's blackwell-lab. Com. Still pretty easy. Are you active on Twitter or any social media that folks might be able to ping you at? I am on Twitter. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't tweet very much, but I am on Twitter. Do you remember yeah, your I, handle? At Aaron D. Blackwell. Anyway, Aaron, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with us. We really appreciate it. It's fascinating. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And once the book comes out, we'll have to do a series of a bunch of the different chapter authors. I might mention one other thing, just because it might give people some ideas. I just met with some collaborators this morning and we're trying to set up to hire people in Honduras to go do surveys to figure out how people are handling the Mm. current coronavirus and distribute some uh, household goods and things like that too. So we're trying to put together a little project for sort of remote field work. Yeah, that's um, wonderful. Working with collaborators down there. Other people might want to think about something like that too. Uh, So this is actually something that once that becomes solid, maybe you would definitely be willing to come back on and talk about how that pans out because I'm sure a number of people are are doing this kind of thing, but you are now our direct line to one of these projects (laughs) to talk about it, to to give folks some ideas. Yeah. And I would, you know, plug in the collaborators who are absolutely really working on that. We could do a, a panel discussion via Zoom talking about it. Because mm-hmm. uh, that won't be awkward at all when trying to edit and do the recording. <laughs> but anyway, this has been great. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. Stay safe. All right, you too. Bye bye. Stay, stay distant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bye.